You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Today we're talking with Lucy Maud, ranch hand and artist. Every single interview is my favorite, but this one is my favorite. There is so much about agriculture and ranching that is a real struggle to put words to. The pat answer for why a lot of bad practices get used is profit. But after years of working in the business, I just really can't buy that line anymore. Sustainability makes money. And most landowners still won't do it. That means there's something deeper and weirder going on here than money. And I think a lot of that comes down to aesthetics, social roles, gender stuff, nonstop 24-7 performance of who we think we're supposed to be in agriculture. Sound bizarre? That's because it really, really is. Good thing we've got someone who does both real-life cowboying and art and drag, because that's what it's going to take to pull this off. Bring it home, Lucy Maud. for it since birth yeah <laughs> literally um and then also kind of like who is the cowboy and what makes him up and what does he wear what does he look like how does he act mm-hmm. and then again like so playing these kind of uh, theoretical fairy tale roles of the cowboy and then translating that into like real life when you actually have to go do work and like how, what kind of chameleon acts a newcomer, a newcomer, or like you know, someone who like me. I'm not necessarily a newcomer anymore, but I'm, I'm not of them, you know. So right. always, and so things that like I've been doing in terms of like the dress code and the uniform and the mannerisms and how like I've realised that I've changed that in order to uh, get seen as more competent. Mm-hmm. You know, and also to just kind of fit in in general and how to get taken seriously. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, there's so much of that when you work in egg, especially when you come in from the oh, outside. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah, I think especially with cowboys, I had the revelation a couple months ago that like cowboys have a uniform mm-hmm. and like they have their work uniform, which is almost like, it's like hat, shirt, belt, jeans, boots. And, <laughs> but they never take that uniform off. Like, even on their days off, you are still wearing, you might just trade out the college shirt for a t-shirt or something like that. Right. And so cowboys have this weird thing that I can't think of any other thing that it corresponds to where you are, like, never not performing your job. 
Right. You know? well, I've heard people talk about military. Yeah, I've heard sorry. people talk. Sorry, I've heard about people talk about the off-duty model look. Like that's a thing because you have to be seen. Like when you're a model, your job is to look good. So even when you're not dressed up for work, you still have to look like one. Yeah, that's a pretty good point. Uh, and that would be, I think, it was like one of it, because I felt like the military, but like the military, they definitely emphasize like being in civvies. You are definitely like, you are not allowed to play the uniform all the time. Right, yeah. But, um, like, I would be hilarious if like a model is the closest alignment to cowboys in terms of always looking, always dressing like you're at work. Right, you know, that would, that would not be surprising at all. Um, and kind of like you mentioned, like there's so much image, like role playing happening at all times in agriculture. And like, uh-huh. I've worked with farms where like the gender norms are very much a thing. So you have these mom and pops and like, there's, there's a few farms that I've found where they like, are just kind of working together as two people. There's not like, they may even have the normal gender roles, but they're like, cool about it, if that makes any sense. And then I've seen other ones where like the yeah. woman, the woman's constantly having to play dumb to fit her role, but she's the one who actually knows what's going on. And so there's yeah. this, you're like stuck in this whirlpool of like her having to be like, you have to ask him questions. You can't ask her questions. And then he just like stares for a minute. And then she's like, after 30 awkward seconds, oh, isn't it over here, Ed? And he's like, it's over here, you know? Oh my God. Yeah, God. <laughs> and I'm like, Literally. I've been here for 12 minutes and I'm exhausted. How do y'all live like this? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so true. And. Right. I was going to ask about um, that. I'm like, this sounds like it's leading up to a conversation about drag. That's how I feel this is going. <laughs> interesting and like all these women who learned how to do like drag king stuff i'm like did they have the same story in life and they're like hang on i could do this for fun <laughs> like what's the yeah. story right yeah for real and yeah what you're saying about like some kind of woman performing down a little bit like um again like the uniform like if i've gone to like if you go to like a formal event in ranching mm-hmm. or like a conference the men will always wear like the normal stuff shirt boots jeans and a hat mm-hmm. and the women will always kind of put on like normal clothes like they might wear like a nice shirt or like something flowy or like some cute shoes mm-hmm. even if she is like the punchiest motherfucker in the west right she, like women never <laughs> wear hats outside of like actually working or men wear them all the time right interesting and, and I always feel like the hat is like a very important for like taking up space and it's like announcing your presence announcing like who you are and your identity mm-hmm. and it's always and like 
Right, yeah. It almost kind of like brings to mind like back in the day when kilts were more like normal attire in Scotland, it was very much men's attire and women just wore whatever, like through the centuries, women just wore whatever was the conventional women's gear, like, you know, in the United Kingdom in general. And like yeah. men were like kilts, yeah, yeah, yeah. kilts, 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 right? Which is interesting. Yeah. It's like a national uniform situation. <laughs> I don't know. Fashion and agriculture, like, there's so much to mine there, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, my favorite subject. <laughs> right? I'm like, because image is so, or excuse me, agriculture is so image-centered, and I don't think anybody realizes it because, like, they just see the image, and they don't realize how much of it is, like, straight-up drag. Like, it's performance all the time. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And it's also, like, like, it's so image-centered that it, like, it will always be, like, it's like, oh, no, like, this is, I'm covered in dirt every day, and I would never, like, I don't, it's just an old t-shirt, like, you would never, it's, but it's, like, there's definitely, it's, like, you can kind of tell immediately if someone's a greenhorn or what kind of cowboy they are, mm-hmm. and, like, especially within cowboy, like, there's kind of different schools of cowboy in terms of how oh. you dress and what you wear and what kind of hat you have and oh. what your saddle and your tack looks like, mm-hmm. um, it's very regional, mm-hmm. um, and... And, like, you can just kind of look at someone when they show up to work and just kind of figure out just from how they dress what kind of cowboy they are. Right? People think gay folks invented, like, that thing with, like, you wear the right bandana and people know what you're into, but, like, cowboys have been doing that forever, right? (laughs) Oh, sure. They totally did. Right. Oh, man. Um, Let's see. Let Let me do my little read here real quick. Um... Yeah. And they'll kind of like edit it all together. Uh, and something I want to check with you on, like, do you want to use your real name? Do you want to use your Twitter handle? Because a lot of folks who work in ag are like, I need this to stay like off my resume <laughs> kind of thing. Um, I'm not using my name. Okay. So it's Lucy. Okay. My internet presence is getting more and more co-aligned with like, oh, yes, the anti-capitalist drag king. He's a cowboy. Amazing. All right. So we're just going to go with Lucy Ellis. Let's do Lucy Maud. That's my online one. Lucy, okay. Is that Maud, M-A-U-D-E? Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me get that all squared up in there. All right. Um, oh, see, my read was kind of geared more towards, like, like financial analysis of agriculture, so we should probably talk about how cattlemen are actually super rich at some point. We'll get into that. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Here we go. One of the things that really frustrates me about the sustainable agriculture discourse is that people think getting info from the bottom up means talking to farmers and ranchers. So they'll just talk to farmers and ranchers and believe that the picture painted there is the whole thing. That's it. That's ag. Now you know what's going on. And it's a beautiful idea, and the only problem with it is it is bullshit. There are so many more people in the picture, and if you're really, truly interested in a holistic, big-picture view of how ag works and what it is, you've got to actually talk to all those people. The problem is, a lot of them don't want to talk because it can be not great for your future drive job. <laughs> the problem is, a lot of them don't want to talk because it can be not great for your future job prospects. Ag has a real code of what you're allowed to talk and not talk about. So I really appreciate Lucy Maud for taking the time to tell us some stories, talk about what she's seen, and where she'd like to see sustainable ag go, both technique-wise and, I guess, perhaps fashion-wise. So... <laughs> Can you give us a little intro about who you are and what you do? 
Yeah, uh, I'm Lisa Mold. I am a young rancher and artist. Um, I've been working in sustainable cattle ranching for about three years now, mainly on kind of large-scale grass-fed horseback operations, which involves a lot of cowboying. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, I am not working in that because I kind of came back from a ranch job uh, about just under a year ago. And it was very exhausting so, and very demoralizing. So I'm having a city uh, a city break. So I'm kind of investing more in art and more in kind of being able to think about what agriculture is and what I've had from it. And um, part of that art has involved creating a cowboy drag king called Jack Lope. So that is my, <laughs> that's my, that's my uh, outlet at the moment. That's fantastic. Well, I think we talked about this a little bit, but I feel like every cowboy, to some extent, is a drag king. They're just just living that life all the time. So. Oh, for sure. It's like yeah, and yeah. When I he when I kind of put the character together, it was just kind of like oh, this is just kind of all I just I've just added the clothes that I would normally wear, the mannerisms I would normally do, and I've just got a ton of makeup on my face, and that's the only difference. <laughs> right, and I have to say. Jackalope looks amazing. He is fantastic. Thank so you. thank you for yeah, bringing this I, to the world. I, thank you so much. Yeah, I went out last night, so it's a good thing it's not visual cool, because I've definitely got what we call in the industry drag lag, where you've got like still like bits of makeup that I haven't washed off probably. <laughs> amazing. That would be a thing. Oh, man. Um... Let's see. So we talked a little bit about gender roles in agriculture and kind of exchanged some experiences. Um, I want to tell you a quick little story and and kind of see what you make of that and uh, uh-huh. <laughs> where you want to go with it. So once upon a time, uh, you know how Idaho grows a ton of potatoes, right? Um, uh-huh. But it, it doesn't actually grow all the potatoes in the U.S. The Idaho potato season can only provide about 10 out of 12 months worth of potatoes just because like storage conditions and everything and uh and it's just good to hedge your bets so the big like french fry makers and chip makers have like potato colonies in the u.s south in sandy areas there's just random thousand acre potato farms um so i'm at one of these places and after you harvest the potatoes and get them out of the ground you have to rinse the dirt off and like put them on a conveyor belt to drop them into a truck so the person, like, there's a ton of people kind of working this line, but the person, like, crewing the conveyor belt, like, there's a joystick and you're basically pointing it, so you have to, like, um, you, like, move it over the truck, you know, like, trailer in uh-huh. order to get the whole thing filled up, like, to the right capacity and also not spill it, like, not exceed <laughs> the trailer. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining, like, Thomas the Tank Engine kind of thing here. Yeah, pretty much, and it's it's the most delicate job on the operation. Like, there's not a lot of delicate work on a potato farm, um, but this is it, because if you miss, then you spill, like, just a ton of potatoes within a couple of seconds, and someone has to pick them all up, <laughs> wash them all again, and, like, redo it. So oh they're, like, the point person in this whole operation. And we're at this one potato farm, and the guy doing this job was like, like, like butch glam. I don't know how to explain it. Like, um, <laughs> like you know, he had a button-down shirt that was like clean, you know, um, and uh-huh. and that can happen. Like, you just don't dive in mud, right? Because he's doing a joystick job, but it like it was it fit properly, which like is something that I can't get my clothes to do, right? Um, uh-huh. his eyebrows were flawless and he has this ponytail like kind of at the top of his head and it's like it's a good ponytail and I'm just like who is he? <laughs> who is he? 
yeah. You know, like, right? Yeah, like he carried himself like, "Uh," and I was like, who is this guy? What's his deal? What's his story? You know? Um, Yeah. And then this farm actually had a lot of problems. Like, um, they were not running a lot of things on that wash line the way they were supposed to be done. And so, like, I'm kind of in the middle of untangling all of this because you can't just be like, this is not right. You have to figure out exactly what parts are not right and kind of like just, you know, describe everything because if they're supposed to fix it they need to know what they're doing wrong and they just did not get it right um and so we're we're kind of like doing a whole little like mini investigation like what exactly is going on here um how is all this stuff put together and um and we're walking by the line at one point and the guy who owns the place is like we were talking about hairnets and they're like oh yeah so and so the guy who's running the joystick he would love hairnets because he frou-frou and frilly and i was like number one Hairnets are hideous, so no. And <laughs> and number two, like he is the most put together, meticulous person in this organization. If he were in charge, maybe it would be fine. Um, yeah. Like that's a little bit of what you need right now. This isn't like I don't want to say like this is not a cowboy situation because actual cowboying is probably pretty detail oriented. But like this whole macho, like we're just gonna throw stuff around attitude was not serving them well. And maybe they uh-huh. could learn some things from their fancy employee and. Anyway, I just think about that, like, on a daily basis. Like, I think about this guy constantly. <laughs> yeah. The end. That's the story. And, yeah, no, definitely. And, like, it's always this weird thing of, like, pretending like you absolutely... Well, I mean, this guy, obviously, is the exception, but, like, I'm so much of ag is, like, kind of pretending that you like, completely just don't care about your appearance. You're like, oh, this is just my work shirt. I just threw it on. Come in there because I work hard. Right. It's but very then, image like, conscious about... That, yeah. Yeah. But when you put the whole ensemble together, it's very curated and very purposeful <laughs> like what kind of thing they're trying to get across yeah yeah I don't know I just I think about that guy constantly like is he okay how's he doing now is he like <laughs> running his own place <laughs> yeah I hope his eyebrows are okay right right uh, the end that's that whole story um <laughs> should we talk about cowboys versus cattlemen sure let's do it what are your thoughts <laughs> so my thoughts mainly is that the like base level distinction is that cowboys are the hired workers and cattlemen are uh, the landowners. Mm-hmm. Um, often there is like in terms of like skill, there's a lot of overlap because cattlemen, again, when you're kind of projecting the image, you have to be like all hat and also all cattle, so you do have to look the part. And mm-hmm. looking the part means looking like a big cowboy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to my knowledge, the cattlemen might do... The cowboys are the one getting up at 5.30 every morning and going out and riding and checking everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, the cattlemen are more kind of managing the... Like, they're watching the prices. They're kind of more... They'll be riding the chute at a sorting or something like that, and they'll be doing kind of less of the, like, rolling around in the dust. Right. So tell us what, when you say running the shoot, tell us what that means, because that's probably not immediately clear to most folks. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, so if you ever, it's like several events during the year, you have to bring all the cattle into the corral to, mainly to sort them or to vaccinate them or brand them. And you run them through this kind of complex system of, um, uh, like, pens and gates. And they get narrow, narrow, narrow until the until this huge herd of cattle is kind of reduced to like a single line of cows right behind each other. And then they go through this little um, chute and then they end up at a squeeze, which is like a mechanic 
uh, metal contraption that's quite, it's like twice the size of the cow. Mm-hmm. And it's got um, an open shut mechanism. And so someone, someone has to run that, open the front gate for the head to go in. They have to lock the head in place just in time, close the rest of the gate around the cow's body, and then open the back or not to let someone in. Right. And so everyone else is normally involved in a lot of running and uh, dust and yelling to get the cows sorted up behind the chute. And then whoever's operating the chute is standing in one spot. It is often quite boring because it's very impressive, <laughs> but it's the like least dirty job of the day. Right. And so it's normally kind of reserved for the boss or the kind of the top hand or something like that. Right. It's the authority job. Sorry? Oh, yeah, it's it's like the authority job. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, and that shoot is there so you can, like, vaccinate, castrate, brand them, whatever, without getting kicked, is is my impression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It holds the count, basically. You don't have to, um, you have to just endlessly rope all day. Yay, perfect. All right. Yep, that reads. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Let's see. Um, yeah, so you mentioned there's kind of, like, this aesthetic, like, just... I don't say Ouroboros, right? You know, we have a lot of folks kind of in the managing class of agriculture who like consciously imitate the look of their employees, which is really, really interesting to me. Um, uh-huh. And that's something you see, uh, you know, you don't see it with, with migrant workers. Like you have folks picking fruit and they'll kind of wear like hoodies, you know, like just ankle to toe and neck and everything is covered. And that's partially protect from sun. And then my understanding is a lot of the women workers do that to like hopefully try and ward off sexual harassment because if they just don't look female under there, then like, how are you going to know? So they cover up their faces and like everything. Um, uh-huh. You know, you don't see a lot of employers imitating that style, but uh, <laughs> you know, um, the, uh, like there's, there's definitely like kind of an aesthetic, like feedback loop where like, particularly in ranching, uh-huh the cowboy look has been kind of popularized through film and other media. And so that's what people expect to see, right? Like that's the look. And if you don't look like that, then people don't perceive you as that thing. And so even though uh-huh. cattlemen aren't really cowboys, like that's the dress code. It's just really yeah. interesting to me. And it's it's like the conscious imitation of a lower class of people. No, definitely. And I think um, like most cattlemen, I mean, depending on some of the operations of the family, there's probably a decent chance that, like, 30 or 40 years ago, the person who's now a cattleman would, could have been a cowboy. And so yeah. they, like, they do have the kind of the backing mm-hmm. or the experience to, to wear all that stuff. Like, they'll have it all <clears throat> for real. But I think definitely it comes down to, like, a power thing. And, like, with fruit pickers, the workers in the fields are wearing hoodies and trying to cover up themselves because they lack the power. They don't have, you know, they are purposefully disenfranchised from being able to work and like without getting heat stroke or without getting harassed mm-hmm. and so you obviously like when you're dressing up to work over those people you obviously like I don't need to worry about heat stroke because I can go back to my AC office right. um, whereas with cowboys um, the image of the cowboy has a huge amount of like cultural and like kind of sexual power in <laughs> Definitely in America. Right. Because of who the character of the cowboy is that we know through, like, films and, like, kind of lore. Mm-hmm. And so even if you're not doing the work of a cowboy, it's still something that you want to emulate because the cowboy is all this... He's this symbol of, like, power and kind of self-assuredness and virility and strength. And mm-hmm. so obviously you can be, like, a, 
20-something workers, you have to dress like that for their job, so that if you're the 50-something manager, you obviously, like, <laughs> like, if you didn't dress like that, you'd be like, oh, I'm not that strong, I'm not that virile. Right. So, you would never do that. Oh, amazing. Yeah, so it's really interesting that you mentioned, like, in many cases, cowboys are hired hands, but with the current ranching structure, that's also, like, just what the larval stage of a cattleman is, is when you're growing up in your family <laughs> ranch, <laughs> you're also cowboying. So, it, like, it kind of provides, like, a feeling of continuity, maybe with your younger self mm-hmm. as well. Um, not just a class thing, but also kind of like a, a hanging on to youth thing a little bit, I don't want to say, but but a little bit, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, and yeah. yeah. Uh, youth is always a really weird thing in cowboying because, like, the, cow- the kind of the most respected cowboy is, like, yeah, age is really weird because you've got, like, the kind of the old John Wayne grizzled cowboy who's, like, super respected. Mm-hmm. And he's, like, and, like, heterosexually, he's, like, still kind of hot because he's, like, got all this experience. Yeah, but like a daddy also, cowboy. Like, that's always, like, contrasted with the, like, beautiful, strapping young I don't think we're not acting first on land, but, right. you know, like, there's always this, like, cowboys, I mean, it's kind of like one of the things that's kind of uh, heterosexual, patriarchy, where, like, men can stay attractive no matter how old they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you have you have your twink cowboys and you have your daddy cowboys, and it's very important that we have options, so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So, uh, we asked the, the inevitable question. So what's it like doing this job as a female identified person? Like any amazing or terrible stories, um, just kind of like weird culture shocks, that kind of thing. It's bizarre doing this job as a <laughs> female identified person. And when I, when I got my first job at a ranch, I've been like, I've grown up in, uh, cities my whole life. Like I'm from London and Austin, Texas. And I had been a college student and I was studying art in Austin. I was living in a communal cooperative house that was like, like it was like vegan and like clothing optional off 9 p.m. Like it was like all the way out there. And then I literally, I got this job and so I walked at graduation and the next day I showed up in New Mexico to work at a cattle ranch. And it was genuinely like about two weeks to a month of culture shock and me just being like, what is going on? Where am I? Who are these people? Why are they acting like this? Right. And it was, um, I mean, in a lot of ways it was very good because I'd never, I'd never been around people who grew up in very rural, very conservative families. So that's obviously like really important for a 20-something to be around. Mm-hmm. But it was, and then kind of, uh, kind of as I kind of kept working on culture and kept being around cowboy crews, you are definitely, the main thing is that you are always, you are always the minority and not just in numbers, but in power. Mm-hmm. Like cowboying is run, it's run by men for men. Mm-hmm. And so if you show up there as, I'm just using the word term, woman as loosely as possible. Right. If you show up there uh, as a woman, the gender roles are either saying that like, this isn't your spot and you or to find a nice cowboy to marry and you can feed the crews at branding. Mm-hmm. Or if you say, like, no, I don't want to do it, I do want to be out here and I do want to be doing this work, then you are just facing every single day you are proving yourself as being worthy of being out there. Right. Commence okay. hazing. Sorry? Commence hazing. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Yeah. And, um, and then even, and then, like, it's just kind of, it's like the most basic 
like heteronormative masculine <laughs> stuff of like the highest compliment that you can get pretty much on a standard crew is like oh she does that as good as a man you know that that is the number one <laughs> that's the highest thing anyone would say of you right and I've had and I've had people be like oh you've got a handshake just like a man <laughs> like <laughs> I mean I can just like do like a wet fish handshake is that what you mean like I just like tell <laughs> and <laughs> Right. Um, and so it's like, and again, you're just always like, it doesn't matter how much you, how many years of experience you have, how good a handler you are, you, like, you will just have to just fight tooth and nail to get a job over some, like, dumb dick guy who just rocks up and he's like, he promises to work hard. And they'll be like, oh, sure, well, why are you? <laughs> that sounds and then, legit. And I think that's, um, like, all the thing is, obviously that there are women in ranching and that always have been. Mm-hmm. And they've been just, like, absolutely smashing it. So it's literally just as long as men have been. Mm-hmm. And, but I think um, you will often find women, really hard to find women in cowboy crews. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's annoying because, like, that's what I like to do. I mm-hmm. like the cowboy work of it. Mm-hmm. And if I was a guy, I could find work like that. Like, there are branches that will hire on cowboys and stuff like that. But right. I think a lot of women end up working in the quote-unquote like softer side of mm-hmm. um, cattle ranching so like regenerative ag and you're looking at more um stuff that doesn't use crews and, and horses and often a lot of managing management side so, like mm-hmm. even if you have like very equitable heterosexual relationships like the man will kind of be out there checking the cows and the woman might be running the marketing or mm-hmm. um, doing the finances Right. Well, it's it's funny that fruit and vegetables are the same way, and it's not like you have to go chase them down with a horse and like wrestle them to the ground <laughs> to do things like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, um, and, but even with that, like, none of the work that a cowboy does is gender exclusive. Like, right. it helps to be fit and strong, but mm-hmm. it helps to be fit and strong just to be a healthy human. Right. And anyone and like none of the work, like roping, especially with horse stuff, like. Mm-hmm. Nothing riding a horse, roping, branding, like maybe carrying heavy fencing posts to go fix the fence, but like that's a truck before. Yeah. So, like none of it is stuff that like helps to be six foot four and 180 pounds to do. Right. You can do it. Like obviously if you're five foot one and 100 pounds, it's going to be a little bit harder. Yeah. But <laughs> anyone in between that range, you're going to be fine. Right. And so it's, it's weird that it's this like super gender thing of like, oh, like, I've, I've been, one time my boss, we were trying to, like, bring hay up to this, like, far-off mountain pasture. Mm-hmm. And my boss was like, he was like, he was like, he was like, anyone you know, are you good driving a stick shift truck with a trailer up that road? <laughs> and I put, he's like, can anyone do that? And I put my hand up, and my friend, who was also a girl, she put her hand up too. And he looked at us, and he kind of smiled, and then he just gave the keys to one of the guys next to us. Nice. And it's like, it's driving a truck, like, right. <laughs> I can reach the pedals. It's not, right. it's not a difficult thing. But how are you going to stick shift without a penis? That's what you use to do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're supposed to be on the brake and the accelerator. Right. on the clutch. Oh, man. Yeah, that's so baffling, especially when it comes to handling livestock, right? And, and especially when there's a horse involved. Like, mm-hmm. and, and they'll, like, I worked with draft mules for briefly. Um, and it was, it was so fascinating because people are like, whenever people would see a woman handling large draft mules, they would be like, 
wow. And, and this will happen to other women as well. They'll be like, wow, I can't believe she's doing that. And I'm like, bitch. Together, they still outweigh you by 3,000 pounds. Do you think 50 yeah. pounds plus or minus really matters? Like, it clearly does not. <laughs> this is not... Yeah. You're not playing tug of war with them. Testosterone is not going to save you when a mule decides to kick. Like, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Like, it's not about playing tug of war with them. You would lose every time. It's about communication, mm -hmm. and it's about, like, emotional yeah. intelligence. And yeah. there's such a reluctance to admit that that's really an important skill and a part of the job. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's the other, the flip side of that too is like a lot of like there is a kind of discussion right now about women in agriculture, women in ranching, and like the New York Times had an article about it a couple months ago. Oh, I missed that. But like the kind of the one of like kind of gross things about it is that like a lot of times you get this talk of like they were like the individual kind of like gather women together who work on ranches and be like, oh, tell us about your experiences. And then sometimes you always get this like weird thing of like you know women are just as good as it, uh, women can do ranching just as men and it's better because we can do it softer or something like that. Like, we're like, you know, like, there's like, it needs yeah. a woman's touch. And it's just like... Right. It's um, still very uh, essentialist. It's, just, it's <laughs> very gross. Or, like, really, you know, women are more nurturing. And, you know, uh, we... Someone comes with these weird um, associations with, like, like, we understand the mother cows better mm -hmm. or something like that because we, too, can throw calves or something like that. I don't know, like... <laughs> I literally just had a talk with a dairy farmer about this kind of thing. And she was like, yeah, it can give you like a lot more insight if you've taken care of, of dairy cattle into your own life when you give birth. And it can kind of help yeah, you sure. maybe have a little bit more empathy for your animals where you're like, okay, you are tired. But at the same time, yeah. sometimes it also hits a little too close to home and it can kind of freak you out a little bit. So it's like, it's there's some yeah, give and take. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's not but like, yeah. but also yeah. like being good. soft with animals is good regardless of feel as manly when you're yelling at your cows <laughs> like I feel like that's really what a lot of it's about yeah I feel like a lot of that like the performative nature in agriculture like is really almost the point in a lot of cases it's like I'm doing this so I can feel manly like if you look at the finances and like whether it makes sense to buy that giant combine it usually doesn't um, there's custom harvest stars all over the place and it's kind of funny because now that soybean and grain prices are collapsing um, you'll see all these articles about all these farms like oh no they're going out of business they've been forced out but if you actually read between the lines they still own all the land they're just selling the equipment that it never made financial sense to own in the first place right um, mm -hmm. so there was like a lot of performative equipment buying going on that is now <laughs> kind of collapsing because finances are actually forcing them to use financial reasoning as opposed to fun reasoning. Dang, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, was, I was trying to think of there's like a cowboy analog to that, but nothing in cowboy and cotton flesh is a combine. Yeah. Like, unless you want to get like a purebred registered quarter hole or something like that. Yeah, like maybe but, several thousand acres would potentially cost the same amount. 
The what was uh, Several thousand acres. So like performative land buying, yeah, yeah, I yeah, guess. Yeah, exactly. Performative <laughs> land grabbing. Yeah. Oh my God. We need to make a book about <laughs> that. Um, <laughs> man. Yeah. It's, it's been, you know, again, fruits and vegetables is like not the most masculine coded industry. And yet because it's agriculture, like it's not like beef where it's like beef, you know, <laughs> it's fruits and vegetables. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's, there's no, there's no fantasy to fruit and veg growing. Like, right. Ranting beef is like closely intertwined with fantasy and fairy tale. Yeah, it really is. Like sexy novels, a lot of that about cowboys. Yeah. Um, not yeah. so much about like an artichoke farm. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? It's like <gasps> it's time to bring in the lemons. Hua. And yet, like, there's still a lot of gender norms kind of going on in horticulture. And kind of the logic that's given, and to some extent it does make sense, is like, um, well, women are raising kids, so they do a lot more of the office-type jobs, like the marketing, you know, food safety, payroll, like finances, that kind of stuff. Um, Uh Which makes a certain amount of sense in many situations, but that means she's doing all the stuff that transforms the farm from a set of, like, household chores into a business, which means Uh she's running the business, and uh-huh. that's never acknowledged. It's always kind of framed as she's helping out. And yeah. and I found, there are a few exceptions, and I found the farms that kind of lean the heaviest on like, she's just helping out, when in fact she's performing the core business functions, tend to perform uh-huh. worse financially because the person who knows the finances doesn't have authority to make financial decisions. Um, and, yeah. and the farms that like, even if they are following those gender norms, if they're like, yeah, she runs the packing house, and she actually runs the yeah. packing house, like they're just emotionally okay with that, do a lot better financially. Um, and so it's it's kind of hard to listen to all this discourse about how farms are suffering, knowing that this is why. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's like, um, I think, I mean, you talked about this on other episodes about like all the things, like the little things that make a farm or a business work and like um, marketing and stuff like that. And again, that's like the kind of the average uh, like male agrarian who wants to kind of perform like he wants to kind of be striding around the fields or striding around the range doesn't want really to have to think about that mm-hmm. but like this farm that I've helped at near Austin they've been like they've only been kind of working on it for like a few years they moved out there uh, a couple of years ago and they are now like selling like every single farmer's market in Austin and they are so popular mm-hmm. they just bought like, their first delivery van and um Part of one of the things is, is that they've got, like, the wife of the couple who owns this, she um, is, like, a very nice artist, and she has done these, like, beautiful illustrations mm-hmm. on the packaging of their eggs and their beef. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I've been, I've helped at the farm park, and people are always like, oh, wow, these look so pretty. And that's, that's part of, like, why it's doing so well, is because, like, it's mm-hmm. really nicely packaged, and it's really nicely marketed. Mm-hmm. And, but... Like, the husband is kind of the one who is kind of getting the credit for it, for, like, raising these... And he's, like, obviously, like, this isn't a critic to them all, like, they're doing an amazing job, but, like, mm-hmm. she, like her skills of um, sitting inside longer are what's helping them be so successful. I know, right? And that's that's something that really kind of makes me a little bit crazy about the Resnicks. So there's this big... Um, they're new to farming. They're, they're basically just millionaires or billionaires who own a lot of California farmland. They built wonderful pistachios like Palm. Uh, I think they own Fiji water. Like they're just big food people. 
And they're kind of like the poster child for like bad agribusiness, right? Because they have the same labor uh-huh. problems that everybody else is getting themselves into. Uh, they're not what we would necessarily call woke, you know, like all that stuff. But the reason they're so freaking successful is because she's an amazing marketer and he got the f- out of her way. And mm-hmm. yeah. if, and nobody will talk about that. And it's, yeah, it's also like, um, definitely like even just as someone applying for jobs in agriculture, like my background is in art. And so I can always be like, oh, I, I can uh, take photographs and I can do websites. And people always kind of like the potential bosses that I've talked to, it's always kind of like, oh, that'd be, that'd be great. Like just kind of have that be another thing that you can kind of offer. Mm-hmm. And it's never like offered to be really like compensated for the extra time or mm-hmm. like, I mean, it's never been something like, I'm even offered to like, like have time off in the day to do it. It's always like, okay, well, it's uh, it's 7 p.m. so we're gonna close up. Uh, when you get home, make sure that you can edit those photos and put them on the website. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's that's my evening. So but that's because that, that's because you're helping out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're helping yeah, out with the website. That's not and a job. Even, and even like just like writing coherent Facebook posts, like a yeah. lot of like we can joke about like um, baby boomers on in, on the internet, mm-hmm. but. Like when you're trying to market some beef and eggs, like you've got to be able to write full sentences and not just capitalize weird words and do ellipses everywhere. But yeah, and it's just little stuff like that. Oh man, yeah, there is. So like, kind of like you know, a lot of what you're getting at here is like marketing is really seen as women's work, and it's not seen as compensated mm-hmm. women's work, even though it's the thing that makes a farm viable, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's there's this hostility to like the people who do that work and just kind of the concept of that work because it's seen as women's work and therefore it's not real and valid. And again, I just think that has so much to do with the real reasons agriculture is struggling. Like if you actually look at the numbers, farmers on average are quite wealthy, even the small ones, they still have way more money than the average American. Um, Uh Like the actual poor, small, struggling farmers were booted out of the business many, many decades ago. Um, (laughs) um, But like... Insofar as they do have struggles, like they're not happy with the prices they're getting and all that stuff, it has so much to do with gender dynamics on the farm and what work they actually value and what they'll actually give people time and resources to do. And so it's uh-huh. so frustrating to kind of like have this dominant discourse about how farms are struggling because of agribusiness. And you're like, no, there's a lot of like in-house behavior that's leading to this. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of other reasons that they're struggling. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, there's there's definitely external stuff, but that comes and goes. And the bad gender culture stays forever, right? I'm just trying to think of, like, another thing that's kind of a perennial problem, and I think it, it comes, again, it comes down to, like, what kind of work you're willing to compensate for, and a lot of that is also just kind of like like a farmhand or a ranch hand, and people aren't willing to compensate that. And so, mm-hmm. again, if you're having, if, you're, if you need two ranch hands to help run your operation, and they're turning over every four to six months because you are a terrible boss. <laughs> that's never that's never your fault. That's like, oh, young people don't want to work these days. Right. Like, they do because they just don't want to work but terrible conditions and no pay. Right. Yeah, I mean, we live in like right next door to the world's largest military installation there's like 30,000 soldiers these are people who signed up to do grueling physical labor and get shot at so don't tell me kids don't want to work you know (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and yeah especially like again when you look at the stats like there is I mean okay I don't actually know the stats but there is like people are like oh young people don't want to work these days and it's like, no, 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 there are plenty of young people desperate to get into agriculture, and there are, like, documentaries about this, and there are, mm-hmm. like, 
it's been labeled like the back, like a kind of new back to the land movement. Mm-hmm. And but it's like again, I think you talk about like the kind of the um, halcyon days of when family fun was good, and people were like, oh, people used to be happy to work for some bread on the table and a roof over their head. It's like okay, that was you should have been paying those workers more. People definitely don't want to work like that now. All gas is like it's in California, gas is like four fifty a gallon. Like, just the fact that people used to be desperate is used as an excuse that, like, they should always act like they're desperate is yeah, just not into that. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I think this is fair of a lot of, like, because definitely, like, what you were saying earlier, like, um, it still comes down to, like, this kind of class struggle, even within a very, very small crew of, like, you've got the, the powered landowners or the operation owners, and then kind of the working class who are trying to get jobs or stay in the business or just keep themselves alive and um, again I think this is what it always, it always kind of comes down to this but like I like I've been working in kind of like a young agrarian movement but like I've made like so many friends in the last few years who are all in the same kind of position and a lot of I, like, I've had so many friends in the last literally even in the last six months who have left the job in ag they were working in mm-hmm. and either gone home or gone back to the city or tried to do something else. Mm-hmm. And there is, it kind of forces a kind of class consciousness, even if someone doesn't, they don't have to be a card-carrying, like, socialist or anything at all, but just, <laughs> when you just kind of see the realities over and over again of who has the power, how are they going to treat you, what is your future looking like in the next, even the next six months, and definitely not the next five years, of like, Hey, I want to work in agriculture, and I'm so I know so much about it, and I'm really like so many young kids, so many young people are like they have knowledge and a passion for agriculture that like exceeds people like twice their age, mm-hmm. and because also they know that kind of if they can have that competitive edge, that's going to help, and then you are just faced with having to like sell your soul to one random landowner who's willing to let you be the ranch manager, mm-hmm. and or just work seasonal jobs year after year after year and mm-hmm. getting paid like $1,200 a month. Right. Well, and you can't necessarily build up any, you know, like your life savings basically is housing property and you can't do that if you're working yeah. seasonal jobs because you're always having to travel to the place. And um, Yeah, exactly. And then also like a lot of other, if you are looking to get hired, people, people don't want to see endless four to six month positions on your resume. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. often you either that's the only options you can get or often you like sign up for a place for a year and it ends up being horrible mm-hmm. and you're miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that kind of reminds me of, so I've been looking into, um, sharecropping in the Midwest. Like if you actually look uh-huh. at, census, at census numbers, there's actually a higher proportion of sharecropping in many of the Midwestern and Plain states in like the early, twi- uh, like the early 1900s. Then there were in many, yeah, then there were in many southern states like Iowa, Illinois, Oklahoma, all had more sharecropping than the state I live in now, which is in North Carolina, um, Mm -hmm. which no one acknowledges. And when you bring it up, yeah, when you bring it up, they're like, oh, well, like it, it wasn't, it couldn't have been like the South. It must have been like an okay kind of sharecropping. (laughs) (laughs) The good kind of sharecropping. Yeah, like the cool kind. And, um... Except if you look at the lease contracts, like they really, the landowners kept those lease contracts down to a year, which you think, why is that? Because if you can keep somebody on for multiple years, they know the lay of the land, they just get a good feel for the rhythm, that kind of thing. It hurts Mm -hmm. your productivity to keep switching to new people every year. Um, Yeah. 
So they've got to have some kind of powerful motive for this, right? And it turns out mm-hmm. they wanted to keep uh, tenant farmers and sharecroppers moving, like go to a different town next time, because mm-hmm. if they stayed, then they would start to organize and form unions. Because uh, the Southern oh, Tenant Farmers wow. Union, yeah, and a lot of other like tenant labor unions were becoming a thing at that time. This is the time when mm-hmm. we're back in the day when like the countryside was radical and agrarian and populist. It wasn't the fucking landowners. It was their tenants who were doing all of this stuff. And the landowners did everything they could to kind of keep them moving and keep them from being able to organize. And this is in the Midwest. That's, that's fascinating. Right. Well, it tells you the yeah. landowners like it tells you. Well, it tells you, number one, the tenants weren't happy. So it wasn't an OK kind of sharecropping. Right. Number two, mm-hmm. the landowners knew it. And number three, the landowners chose to not solve the problem, but just kind of keep doing things badly and just kind of take it out on somebody else, like make the the tenants be the ones to pay for that by keeping them moving all the time. Um, Uh So, yeah, so the reason the countryside is super conservative now is because thanks to automation, they were able to evict all their tenants. It has nothing to do, like, it's, the legend is it's because it was family farms getting more and more equipment and gobbling each other up, and you don't actually see that until, like, decades later when it was already quite conservative in the countryside. Like, that's what really happened. Yeah. It was a labor purge um, <laughs> that did that. That is, that is so, that's okay. It's funny that you're saying this because that's literally what, like, me and, like, a lot of other people have been dealing with. Mm-hmm. It's like, you have all these great places that are offering, like, um, regenerative agriculture and you can learn about the sustainable movement and be involved with it, but it's a three-month internship and then you yep. move on. Yep. And so, like, the last few months, as kind of me and a lot of people I know have kind of gotten, like, more and more visibly disgruntled, mm-hmm. we've kind of said, we've like, there needs to be some kind of union or something, but we are all moving all the time. We're all so far away from each other. That's why. And That's on purpose. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Pardon my French. Yeah. Sorry. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's still very real. And... Uh, it's still very much and like and then like these same kind of like lovely um, organizations can be like oh like the average age of the American farmer is 58 and young people we need to fill the gap so it's like we're here we, we want to fill the gap too don't worry right. <laughs> we just need work and we need to stay in one place mm-hmm yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's that's really something that you see is like back in the day, these landowners, they didn't want to have a permanent, like settled tenant class because the the closest that ever come to actually saying it out loud was be like, oh, that's just unstable for society. That's not good. So we don't want that. We want to keep them moving. And there are some excuses about how like, well, they should always be like either moving up or moving down, like kind of an up and out kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But it really came down to like, we don't have to want to see these people next year and deal with what we did this year. <laughs> yeah, and, that, um, that sounds familiar. Right. And um, just that that hasn't changed at all. And, you know, it, and at the same time, like, they didn't want, quote, a permanent tenant class, but they also, like, had no plans to run the farm themselves. Like, they needed tenants. They never yeah. changed their operations so that they wouldn't need that labor. I mean, eventually yeah. they did once automation became more affordable. But, like... yeah a lot of these people were like basically land speculators who were monetizing their land through tenants. So they couldn't get rid of the tenancy system. Their, their money depended on having tenants, um, but yeah, they wouldn't I, actually give them what they needed to thrive. So. Yeah. No. And then I'm like the other side of that, like from the tenant's perspective is that if you have a terrible owner who is like manipulative and abusive, if everyone's moving on within six months or a year, the next person never has a chance to find out about that. Yeah, that's and true. So, so you, um, 
Well, I say that because I'm like, okay, side thoughts. Um, how, there's like a name that I would love to name, and because <laughs> they are a, ter- there's a terrible organization that is like one of the kind of first stops that lots of young growings make. Mm-hmm. And it's this place called Okay. And they have six month cycling internships, and there's a reason for that. Right. Like, the landowners, if they know that they have unsustainable methods in terms of how they manage their people, because, again, managing is a, is a soft skill that we don't need to actually cultivate. Yeah. Um, you, like, there are organizations today that, like, foster six-month internships or something like that, but so that they can, they can just cycle people out fast and get the work in whenever they need. Right. But... If any of these interns could actually talk to each other and warn former interns, they'd be like, do not work here. It's a shit show. Right. You know, and I'm so glad that you tied kind of like the bad management culture to machismo. Um because I think there's there's so much overlap there. Like, if you can't be bothered to, like, be empathetic with your livestock that your life depends on, like, your living, your living livelihood, mm. blah, like, why would you feel that way towards people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, I don't know. That's, yeah, that's a huge connection. Like, it's it's kind of, like, the people skills are just viewed as not real work. And so, like, mm-hmm. really what that does is you just make your employees do a lot of the people skilling, like, constantly stage managing you, which means they're... Mm-hmm. Because that work is not important. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder, okay, because definitely, like, the, I've worked for one place that kind of uh, floated itself as being, like, super sustainable and really good and ponies in the sunset and everything. And then in reality, it was, like, incredibly poor management and in every sense of the land, the people, the cattle. And I know, my, I know people who've worked places like that. And so I'm wondering if this is a note to any young ranchers out there if your place offers that it's, like, very, very good for kind of management and sustainability, watch how they manage the cattle, and if they actually do do low-stress management, mm. I think that shows a kind of awareness of just how animals and organisms work. And at least I think in my experience, seeing someone actually tout low-stress management and actually do it is a good sign that they're actually going to be a good manager. Because mm. I know a lot of people who say, oh, we do low-stress management, and blah, blah, blah. And they don't at all, and then they end up being extremely terrible to their employees. Right. Because I think it comes down to whether you care about the well-being of these living things on your property. Yeah, well, it speaks to whether they know what self-control is and if they actually feel like it's worth it to do it in the moment, right? Yeah, Which yeah, is, exactly. Yeah, that is management skill. That's so interesting. That's a really great insight. Thank you. It just came to me. Yeah, it's like, watch how they treat the cows. And if it's bad, you're next, you know? Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what low-stress management means? Because that may not be... Oh. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so low-stress management is the idea that when you need to move animals, like uh, any animal that you're kind of like managing, in managing the progress of the movement, I know it with cattle, but... You can kind of you can make an animal move by making a big noise and making slapping your arms around, and the animal will move away from that. Mm-hmm. But basically, that's sort of like such a huge amount of uh, stimulus to them mm-hmm. that after a while of doing that, if that's all the way you've moved them, they will eventually either get uh, like desensitized to that, and so you need to make an even bigger movement and get dogs in that are even more aggressive dogs, and so you end up doing like very aggressive methods of moving the animals. 
And often sometimes the animals then get sick of that and they might turn aggressive themselves because they've never been like handled in that kind of gentle way. Right. Whereas if you try and whereas low stress movement is the basic concept is you kind of walk closely enough to the animal or just give a smallest amount of pressure that you can so that the animal moves in the correct way that you want it to. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as it moves in the right way, you take that pressure off. Mm-hmm. So the animal learns that the smallest amount of stimulus, if it does something, the stimulus, the stimulus goes away. Right. So you actually, okay. like, train them? Yeah. It's what? You train them. And then, and then you can, and then as you kind of keep doing that, the animals will be gentler and they won't be so flighty from you and... Like, I mean, that's how you can kind of end up with, like, herds of cows that you can walk among and pet, is if they just know that humans are not going to scare them and not going to try and, like, cause them any trauma. Right. Yeah, like, you kind of mentioned, like, the kind of the default is very, like, fear and, like, pursuit-oriented, so they see people as a predator, Mm -hmm. and if you're just a lot quieter about what you do and you use different techniques, then they're like, oh, people are cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so they're not as stressed. yeah, and it comes out to the kind of a fear system of like, like if you're trying to move a bunch of horses and you just immediately just lope up to them, hooting and hollering, waving your arms, the horses are all going to take off as fast as they can, and then it turns into this like wild horse chase. Mm-hmm. And some operations, that is so much the standard mode of operation that any time you go and move horses, they expect it to be a wild horse chase. Mm-hmm. And Whereas if you kind of walk up to the horses at a walk and they stay quiet and the horses move away, mm-hmm. you can just walk with them or you can just go at a nice easy trot and keep everything under control. And it's not as exciting and it doesn't look like a Western movie as much. Right. But the animals are happier, you are less stressed, and your employees are less stressed. Right. So again, I feel like we're coming back to that like very image conscious, like we would rather kind of like fit the image, you know, than like mm-hmm. actually do that job. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. And if that's for me, you can just kind of see it. Like, I remember this one place I worked at last year, um, they like they would just kind of ride up as fast as they could, make a lot of noise, and then everything would take off and it would evolve. And, like, when you're moving horses, it's fun. Like, it is fun to do that. Like, it's fun to just go as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. And, like, the wind in your ears and, like, the horses kind of have a fun time because they like going fast too. Right. But they, then it just kind of, it can, they can make a long turning so easily or they can scatter or they can break through something. And then you've got a move that should have taken two hours and it takes a whole day. Mm-hmm. And that just happened. That is just so much an expected way of operation for a lot of places. Right. And your labor productivity is not great. So then you're like trying to, to cope with it by not paying your employees anything. And it's like, oh my God, it's almost like this is some kind of cycle. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like it perpetuates itself. Right, yeah. Well, it's funny, too, because if you look at, like, other industries that are completely different from ag, like manufacturing and low-cost retail, they found that, like, managing your employees properly, uh, setting up your business so that you respect their time instead of having shitty equipment and, like, just a shitty setup and expecting your employees to kind of, like, just deal with everything, mm-hmm. they make a lot more money you know, like per square foot, you know, of manufacturing or retail space. And it it has so much to do with like investing in your people and the whole, like that word empowering, empowering your people. Um, (laughs) But it's real. And it's so funny because I actually started seeing this in agriculture. Like the more I started working, like the places that didn't really 
get hung up on gender roles. They just did the work. Um, the places uh-huh. that invested in their employees, the places that approach things in a chill, calm manner instead of like just dick out all the time, um, made so much more money. And yeah. Yeah, and that's it's just so against how people talk about agriculture because we have this belief that everything bad in ag happens because money. And I'm like, no, it, it, if it was about money, we'd be doing this sustainably already. It is something else mm-hmm. deeper and much crazier. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And it's like, um, again, you've got, I think you mentioned this in one of your episodes about like, it's kind of, it, sometimes it's like people who don't necessarily know the right way to do it have been doing it this way for so long that it's become the standard. Mm-hmm way of things that get done and and then you try and change it you're like hey that actually isn't the best way to do it then then suddenly you're up against three generations of people being like oh no and it's just like pushing against the brick wall the whole time yeah yeah and it's so funny because like you've probably noticed this but i've blocked a lot of egg twitter and, and they get really mm-hmm. mad because they're like, but you're here to talk to me. And I was like, I thought it was pretty clear I was here to talk about you, but okay. Uh, <laughs> like just after you, yeah, after you work in agriculture for a little while, it becomes really clear that there's not a whole lot of point in trying to change people's mind. Joel Salatin talks about this. I think everyone who's been a farm worker realized this, realizes mm-hmm. this. But you have a class of people who are so intent on always being the center of the conversation that if you talk about egg, you're supposed to be like sweet talking them. And I'm like, nah, that's a yeah. waste of time. If you want to yeah. learn, you'll do it. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And it's like, it's definitely like the people that you're supposed to be sweet talking or, and then even like a lot of like sustainable, like nonprofits or whatever, they will kind of like speak slightly more critically about like what needs to change. Mm-hmm. But they're still always kind of, um, kowtowing to the landed people, the generational farmers, mm-hmm. and being like, please, would you consider changing your ways? Right. It might work out better you in the end. Yeah. And then, like, kind of anyone else on the outside or any farm workers, they're like, you need to change your, you need to change your ways yesterday. Like, yeah. this is terrible. Right. It's like, could you pretty please stop doing this thing that actually loses you money? That would be super nice. And I'm like, ow. <laughs> yeah. They're like, they're, like, they're like, maybe. Well, then a lot of times it's like you get to have old families that do change the ways. Then it's like, bring out the trumpets, bring out the praise. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be this a bigger deal. Right. You should treat your boys well. You treat your land well. Right. Yeah. Well, and you do see farms that kind of do things differently, just kind of under their own power. Like that does happen. Mm-hmm. And I think something folks in the sustainability community don't realize is they become like rock stars within the sustainability community. They're like in all the magazines. They're very famous. Yeah. <laughs> but in their actual own ag community, like quite often they're ostracized because yeah. yeah, they're just weird and different. And they're making the rest of us like either look bad or you're just being crazy. And that's not how we do it here. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, I think there's a, there's a um, ranch in Texas where the woman owning it was one of the first people to kind of switch to sustainable management. Mm-hmm. And it got to, like, there was a drought, and, like, her pastures were green and everyone else was yellow. <laughs> but people still people still didn't want to know what she was doing. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, because she's weird. I don't again, want to be again, like her. Yeah, and again, because, you know, oh, that's just, that's just old Betsy down the street. She's, you know, she's a weird old lady. She doesn't know what she's doing. Right? Oh, my God. Yeah, so it's, I don't know, like, again, like, you've, you know, after you've worked in ag for a few years, you begin to realize there's just no point in trying to sweet talk people. You just do what you need to do and you live your life, right? And mm-hmm. yeah, 
I don't know. I just, there's a few farmers who actually don't care what their neighbors think. And I'm like, I want to sit down with you and like figure out what your deal is because, you know, um, agriculture talks a lot of like being a maverick, but like they're the most, mm-hmm. again, like conformity and misconscious people I've ever met in my life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I just want to well, sit them down, like, you know, go ahead. Yeah. Um, but when you kind of also look at the crisis that is kind of approaching agriculture and mm-hmm. the world in general, like, when you come down to sustainability and how to like actually get that implemented effectively, it's so disheartening because it kind of relies on just random landowners earning ten to ten thousand four acres of land, mm-hmm. just kind of happening again upon the same agriculture, being like, oh, you know what, that sounds cool. I'll try it. Right. Yeah. And so it's this entirely chance-based thing of doing this, of getting this kind of to fit in anywhere mm-hmm. on a larger scale, and there's. Like, there's obviously there's no time left. Mm-hmm. And we're just kind of like, please consider this, because it's better. Right. Yeah, it's just like, if you lucked into land a few generations ago, like, congrats, it's now all about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like, and it's just, like, yeah, I, went, I was talking to this rancher um, a few hours outside Boston, and he was just at a grass, uh, beef conference and just kind of heard about rotational grazing. And he was like, oh, I'll try that. Right. And now it works incredibly, and he's got, like, one of the most diverse grass sections in Central Texas nice. within, like, four years. Yeah. But the people next to him are still doing it the old way, and mm-hmm. he's only got 14,000 acres, which is nothing in Texas. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's just, it's just so, like, he's doing such a good job, and it's just, he just happened upon it and happened to try it out. Mm-hmm. And it's just so... Um, it's like, it's like such a hard path to cut forward. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing that drives me nuts a little bit about the sustainable agriculture, like discourse is it's really, it's about techniques. Like we should do rotational grazing. We should do covered crops. We should do combos. Well, no, shit. like that's all stuff we've known how to do for a very long time. Why yeah. aren't you asking why it ain't happening yet? Cause that's the real question, right? That's the money part is like, yeah. there's some social stuff underlying why we do it. And again, it ain't even about money. It's about image, feelings, reputation, because a lot of these folks have enough money that they don't need to worry about income. It's about like social power and it's about image. Mm-hmm. Like that's what's really going yeah. on here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, behind this whole thing. <clears throat> anyway. I wonder if, okay, this is getting slightly into theoretical, but like what if you just kind of, if you were raising lives, if you made it past a law or a bill, like if you're raising livestock, they have to be managed rotationally. I don't think you'd ever get, here's the thing, you'd never get that law passed, right? Because, like, you can't no, tell no, family no. farmers what to do. Yeah. <laughs> because of the but social like, power, right? It would be, like, such a simple step just to, like, anyway. Yeah. Too yeah, I don't know, like, having done audits, what, what would happen? I can just tell you what would happen, right? Um, mm-hmm. They would find a way to do the bare minimum to check it off. So they'd just do put and set grazing, which is, like, what they do now, like, set stocking. And be like, mm-hmm. well, my grant, my ranch has four sections, and I've always used a quarter of my ranch per year every year. I'm already doing it. <laughs> that's oh, what would happen. Yeah, that's, fair. that's what would happen. Um, like we did, I did a lot of like fruit and vegetable like audits, um, food safety wise, and there were some audits that also have, in addition to food safety, some environmental components to it. And like farms would just really do the bare minimum. Like again, every once in a while, you'd find a place that was like really training the workers well. And <laughs> like actually fulfilling the purpose of the thing, not just checking off a box. Um, uh-huh. But 80, 90% of them know, right? So you'd ask them, for example, yeah. like, 
says here you're supposed to preserve like polydairy habitat. So tell me about your deal. Like what are, what are we doing here for that? And they're like, well, there's this hilly area that's too steep to mow, so I don't. Um, <laughs> and that's the pollinator habitat. And it's it's like an inland desert area, so it dries up in May. And there's nothing for bees to eat, like, the entire year. This uh-huh. does nothing for pollinator habitat, right? Um, yeah. But we're just supposed to check off that they have a plan, not that the plan is any good, right? Um, yeah, God, that's long as the yeah, and then, so I, I didn't even realize there was anything really, like, abnormal about that, because it was just kind of like, well, native bees, they're used to it, you know, and, and probably to some extent that's true, but also wetlands exist, um, okay. and that's probably part of how they survive, so try and maybe have some of that. Anyway, so we, um, then I hit the the Yakima Nation uh, farm, they have an orchard in central Washington, and it was like, okay, pollinator habitat. And they were like, well, here it is. Here's the orchard block. Here's the other orchard block. Here's the pollinator habitat. It's planted in stuff that blooms across the entire season. So you make sure there's a continuity, you know, like just like if you're grazing cattle, you want to make sure there's actually grass every single day. Um, mm-hmm. They're doing that for bees and they're like, and it's, you know, and it's irrigated. We make sure it, it doesn't dry up. Um, and I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> You've actually wow. did it? Wow. Yeah, and it's it's kind of funny because, like, being a native operation, like, I think it's really easy to just kind of stereotype it as, like, well, they're more in touch with the earth. Um, but that didn't spontaneously arise out of, like, a feeling of being in touch with the earth. They actually did things, and they had, like... The, yeah, a lot of planning. Yeah, like, they executed a thing, right? Um, they had enough people because it's a tribal operation as opposed to a small family operation or, like, even a large one. They actually had the people and the bandwidth to pull it off. So, like, logistically... Uh-huh. There's a lot going on that was different. And I was like, well, maybe we should learn from this instead of just being like, the one way we're used to doing it must be the best way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, learning from it, that's, that's very, it's a high expectation. That's right. what it takes. Yeah. I, just, I feel like there's been so many times in U.S. history where like Anglo farmers were surrounded by people who were doing a better job than them, and they never were like, let's learn from that. They were always like, time for an ethnic purge. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, and, like, again, a lot of stuff of, like, forest management and range management, like, um, Native tribes have been doing that already for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And then, like, that's probably why, like, the prairie was so fertile, so deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then, like, we're kind of like, oh, wow, if you, if you let pastures rest for a while, it, it works really, really well. Yeah. It's being treated as kind of like revolutionary brand new information. I know. Yeah. That's so frustrating. <laughs> like the, the growth and the birth of like the white rotational grazing movement, like we invented this. You you copied it from from a lot of other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and also that's a lot to kind of like um idolize native cultures, but like they they did have range management system for bison and mm-hmm. forest management. Yeah. And I think I think one of my favorite like historical things is I think I was reading um, an Indigenous People's History of the United States mm. by Roxanne Dumbart. In this book, there's records of when white people kind of came to New England for the first time. They, could, they had records that they could, you could ride a horse at a gallop through the forest. It was mm-hmm. so clear, it was so well managed. Yeah. And then within like a hundred years or so after that, the forest was so thick with underbrush that you couldn't do that at all. Right. And... They never drew. They never just like connected the dots of why that was. Right. But a lot of the tribes living there had like incredibly intense and dedicated 
management system because that's how they can kind of work in this really like productive way. They could burn the prairie because they knew that was like that would help with growth and and again now it's kind of like ooh new edgy techniques. I've kind of been dying to talk to somebody about like the farm aesthetic thing, like how it's really just more aesthetic driven than yeah. money driven. We, yeah, we, I mean, we barely, we could have like another whole conversation just on that because oh my gosh. there is so much to say. And like, literally just like the outfit. I just did, actually I did last night for um, my drag performance. I was doing, it was achy breaky heart that merged <laughs> into Old Town Road. And so the first part was kind of more kind of upright cowboy looking. And then the second part was more like glam cowboy. And even that, there are so many coded, thing that like if I did that in rural New Mexico they would still be like an understood code <laughs> and like in Austin they're just kind of like, like oh like now they've got a shiny shirt on but like there's like all this like rodeo culture and kind of rocker and cow puncher stuff that's like laid in there wow and yeah so part of me would be terrified to take Jack Lope into the rural western states but part of me can't wait to (laughs) that would be amazing uh there was a time i was in a greyhound bus station in like wyoming at three in the morning because that's how life works sometimes and Uh um there's like a couple of buses of people who were on a layover at the time and so we're all just sleeping on the floor and this guy walks in and he's like a cow- like actual cowboy, right? So he's got the hat. He takes his hat off, holds it to his chest. And he's like carefully picking his way through all the sleeping people. And he's like, sorry, ma'am. Pardon me, ma'am. Excuse me, ma'am. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was just like, this guy, it's three in the morning and he is on, you know? <laughs> yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, you're never, yeah, when you're a cowboy, you're never not on. You're never not being a cowboy. Right. Like, it was, yeah. Exhausting. Right, it was completely, like, genuine, I feel like, but it was, like, he was on, on brand. Yeah, it is. But it's, it's it's like, it's, it is, like, genuinely sweet and daring. Yeah. But it's also, Yeah. That was so great, and thanks so much to Lucy Maud for taking the time. So much of the usual farm journalism is just based on talking to landowners, and you never hear what they're like as bosses. It's just so good to talk with someone who gets it, which is just about everyone who works for farmers. Unfortunately, one of the big and I think very intentional side effects of the migrant labor situation is it means a lot of the folks who work in agriculture, for farmers, don't want to talk about it for fear of retribution. People who have left the industry and have passed into a different line of work are such a huge resource in that way. Lucy Maud is working as an artist now because it has more of a future than working for farmers. You can find her at lucymaud.com, that's Maud with an E, and on Twitter at a big jackrabbit. Moral of this interview, with the deepest apologies to RuPaul, you're either born owning land or you're not. The rest is just drag. (laughs) 